Well, good evening, everybody. It's lovely to have you with us this evening. And again, if you're a visitor here, then a very special welcome to you. Um, We're going to worship God again together this evening. And uh, we're going to sing uh, in a moment, oh, praise the name. But let me just read our call to worship before we come to sing. It says, Great are the works of the Lord, full of splendor and majesty. He remembers his covenant forever. He broke the bread and gave thanks. He said, this is my body, which is for you. And a combined call to worship from Psalm 111 and 1 Corinthians 11, 22. Let's uh, let's stand together and sing as the musicians lead us. Oh, praise the name. Uh, One of the songs that we are enjoying here and one which we can really allow ourselves to worship in. Uh, let's, Let's sing this together.
I'm going to ask if Sheena would come and read uh, 2 Kings 15, verses 1 to 12. Uh, The reading's on page 385, if you have a church Bible, 2 Kings uh, chapter 15. In the 27th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Azariah, son of Amazai, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 52 years. His mother's name was Jecolai. She was from Jerusalem. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father, Amaziah, had done. The high places, however, were not removed. The people continued to offer sacrifices and burn incense there. The Lord afflicted the king with leprosy until the day he died. And he lived in a separate house. Jotham, the king's son, had charge of the palace and governed the people of the land. As for the other events of Azariah's reign and all he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? Azariah rested with his fathers and was buried near them in the city of David. And Jotham, his son, succeeded him as king. In the 38th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Zechariah, son of Jeroboam, became king of Israel in Samaria, and he reigned for six months. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, as his fathers had done. He did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. Shalom, son of Jabesh, conspired against Zechariah. He attacked him in front of the people, assassinated him, and succeeded him as king. The other events of Zechariah's reign are written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel. So the word of the Lord spoken to Yehu was fulfilled. Your descendants will sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, once again we come into your presence. We thank you for your word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And for what it gives to us on a daily basis as we read and study and make use of it. We thank you for these songs of worship that we've been able to sing to you. And we give you praise, Lord, for the words of those which inspire our hearts and give us uh, a direction to look at you and to see you in a new way. We thank you, Lord, for all that you're doing amongst us. We thank you for this time that we can spend together. And we ask, O God, that you would help us because we realize that we are so broken and so lost at times, that we need your direction. We need you to show us the way. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you will come. You will point us, uh, point our gaze towards Jesus. That you will help us to acknowledge his kingship, his lordship. 
and to see the beauty that he has. And Father, we ask that as we worship you tonight, as we praise you, as we sit and hear your word read to us, spoken to us, we pray that you would help us to worship you in the way that we ought. And so, Father, be with us tonight, we ask, as you have promised to be. Let your name be lifted up and glorified in this place. And let us see Jesus amongst us, even this evening, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, Now, there there is only one notice that I want to draw to your attention tonight. Uh, For those of you who um, subscribe to the record, there are copies uh, at the back. I understand it's a, a dual version this time, so it's July and August and it's priced at two pounds. It'll be on uh, the back table there. Um, and so, uh, if you are a subscriber, then please pick yours up. If you're not a subscriber and you'd like to, then please do that. Um, we're going to be hearing a little bit later on um, about Charleston, so I'm just priming uh, Laura to be ready for that when the time comes. Uh, but we're going to sing again before uh, she comes to tell us a bit about what's been happening this week. Uh, Psalm 22, verses 25 to 31. So let's uh, stand and sing that song. Colin's going to uh, lead us in that, and the tune is Warrington. Let's stand together. You are the theme of
Okay, Laura, would you come and tell us a bit about Charleston? You can use this centre mic here and just uh, explain to us what's been going on this week and uh, why you still look so lively after it all. <laughs> yeah, so um, basically this is the first week out of our three weeks of summer, summer camps that, that's just happened. So we were on camp. There was two groups, one primary school group that went to the Jockneesh Centre up in Tanadice towards Forfar, and also our new camp this year, which was for our teenage group that we hold here every Thursday. Um, so this was the first time for them going on camp to the Christian Compass Centre towards Glenshee. So the kids had an absolute amazing time. There was lots of activities like a sky ropes course, which was so scary, but it was also amazing. Um, kayak and, and just loads of adventure activities, which was great. Um, but more importantly, this, this past week we've been exploring what is hope. And each day we've taken a certain aspect of hope. So we had of, of God's character. So we've had honesty, um, omnipresent people and eternal perspective um, and it's just been a really eye-opening week um, Jack and I we were both with the teenagers um, this week and it's been amazing to see how God's used the the weekly groups and really opened up the hearts of these young people um, and I'll let Jack tell you a wee bit more about what happened on our teenage camp Right, so I gave a, just a small talk on eternal perspective and uh, just kind of what it means to live as a Christian and um, where, where we're headed and um, that everything in this world just turns to dust. Um, so I had, I'd, I've been coming over to Scotland for five years now and I've gotten to know these kids quite a bit. Um, so I, I really like um, got to know them a lot and I wanted to see kind of where their hearts were. Um, so I had all the kids just bow their heads, um, close their eyes, everybody in the room. So it was just me and the kids. Um, and I had them raise their hand if, if they believed what we were teaching to be true um, about uh, hope and um, the talks that we were giving. Um, and I had about um, nine out of the 11 kids raise their hand um, and believe that all that we were teaching um, was true. Um, and then I asked the kids, um, if you'd like to have a relationship with God and become a Christian, to just raise your hand. And I had um, five of the kids um, want to be in a relationship uh, with Jesus Christ and have them as their savior. Um, and four of those kids have been kids that I've been um, just like pouring Christ into their lives. And it's just so wonderful and just a calling to prayer to have these kids come to faith. Um, and I had one kid um, that uh, just came for the, for the first time. To, to seek somebody come for just four days and want to have a relationship with Jesus just shows how um, God is working in the lives of these kids. So, And I think that was so encouraging just to see how throughout the year, like I know personally I turn up sometimes on a Thursday night and I think, here we go again, is God actually working? And to see actually how God has been all along despite my sort of finite mind and um, sight of what's going on. And so it's just been so encouraging to see these young people um, at such a young age wanting to, to give their lives to God. And, and so I guess it's time for us now to work out how to disciple these young people. And again, it's just amazing to see God's sort of big tapestry, well, potentially seeing a bit of God's big tapestry of how 
this church plant's beginning to happen in Charleston. Now there's these young people there that are, are wanting to be discipled and are wanting to come to know God. Um, so it's a really encouraging and amazing time. Um, so we just really appreciate prayer for, for the team um, in the future weeks, but also for these, for these young people, even though for the ones that just thought it was true, which is a huge step. Usually on a, a, a Thursday night, it's a battlefield. <laughs> Um, so that, that's that been wonderful. So um, if you could pray for wisdom um, and how to best support these young people in their walk with God and um, yeah, how to really allow that head knowledge to become, become truth and heart knowledge, that would be so appreciated. Um, in the weeks to come, we have our activity week this week. So we're taking the kids out on different activities. That, that will just be the primary school kids. And then the week after is the holiday club. So that will be a fun time to explore what it means to run the race for God and to be a disciple. Um, so if you could pray for that, or if any of you have young kids in primary school that you would like to come along or to bring their friends along, then you're more than welcome. That will be from half past 12 till 4 o'clock from the 23rd to the 27th in Camperdown Parish in Charleston. So please just come and see me at the end or email me. That would be great. But that's the update. <laughs> Thank Wonderful. you. Thanks very much. Thank you. Um, just, to, just to say one thing after that. Christian youth camps had a huge impact on my life when I was a child. Huge. Um, and so please continue to pray for the kids and the leaders and we've got a number of camps from the free church uh, around the place. And an amazing opportunity just to speak to children. And uh, very often people get, you know, in church get the blame of, sort of trying to brainwash children into Christianity. I can tell you from my own experience that we met with Jesus in a big way uh, in these camps. And it was nothing to do with brainwashing at all. It was absolutely wonderful. And so please continue to pray. Now, before David comes to preach, we're going to sing again, and I think I forgot to take up the offering uh, at the last uh, singing, so if we could do that now as well, that would be helpful. Uh, O love that will not let me go, um, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. Let's stand together as we sing this hymn.
please be seated. We're going to look at the uh, book of Philemon. And the simple way to remember where Philemon is, it's the one before Hebrews. Uh, and if you like page numbers and you've got the Pew Bible or Church Bible, it's on page uh, 1200. Beautiful short letter. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, to Aphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your hell. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers, because I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. I then, as Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I'm sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains with the gospel, but I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do will be spontaneous and not forced. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He's very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So, if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he's done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. One thing more, prepare a guest room for me, because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now, we're going to look at this and to look at the question of slavery, and I hope that you, you will see why it's important to have that. Can I also say, uh, as regards the camps, the camps were a great influence on my life as well, and I endorse uh, what Hugh said, although when I went to camps as a camper, I wasn't a Christian, and I made that very clear. Um, can you imagine? I argued all the time, um, but there was an old man uh, I think he was 90 years old, which for me as a 14-year-old was just incredibly old. And uh, we were asked to write an essay at the Highlands and Islands Postal Sunday School Camp. I'll never forget this. So I wrote an essay about why the Bible was rubbish. And they gave me second prize. And it was a Bible. <laughs> so, so, which was really quite uh, smart of them. Um, I've still got it. It's a little King James. And I remember saying to the old guy... Uh, where are you from? He said, I'm from Wick and I'm going to heaven. Where are you going? 
And it, it just had a big, big impact on me. And then after I became a Christian, I went to camps as a leader and very quickly became what in the old free church days was a commie. I was, uh, that was uh, a comma was the commandant. Imagine you wouldn't have that as a, a camp title now. You're the leader of the camp. You had the commie and the adji and myself and Derek Lamont. What a combination that was. Uh, we were commie and adji. And uh, there are many stories to be told from those camps, which will be for another time. But the, uh, the good that they do, uh, because it isn't about... Uh, indoctrinating in that sense. It was about providing a Christian witness and an opportunity for young people in the context of living together to learn about the Lord. And many, many people I know became Christians through those camps. So we are very, very thankful for them. Now, uh, why is this subject of slavery quite important? Well, one of the reasons is it's An argument that people use to say, oh, the Bible supports slavery and we're all against slavery. Um, We take it as for granted that we were all against slavery, but most of humanity hasn't been. And in my lifetime, it's astonishing, I say when I went to camp. So I went to camp in the 1970s. Um, But since then, slavery has returned to Britain. In the United Kingdom, it's estimated that there are 20,000 people who are uh, slaves. And I say, we'll look at that in a moment. But it's, it's much more important or, or wider than that, and it's how the Bible deals with this. And I think this lovely little book of Philemon really helps us. Just one other thing I want to say as a kind of background to this. Now, I highly recommend, there's a film, I think you can get it on DVD or Netflix, or you certainly can get it on DVD, uh, called Amazing Grace. And it's the story of William Wilberforce. It's one of my favorite films ever. It's an incredibly moving film. And uh, there's a biography by a politician called William Hague of William uh, Wilberforce, which actually is really excellent and very encouraging and uh, well worth reading. What does this have to do with us? Well, part of it is that cities, even like Dundee, were built on slavery. There's a history there. I think, as well, there uh, was a lot of misinformation about slavery. Uh, The British people did not invent slavery. Slavery has been part of human culture for almost as long as human beings have existed. In Africa, different tribes enslaved one another. Arab slave traders were the mainstay of the trade. But to the shame of this country and other Western countries, after the discovery of the West Indies and America... The way that the land could be worked needed so much labor that they employed slaves. It's a bit like just now the Perth, uh, we're hearing from Perthshire that the fruit farms, uh, the fruit is going rotten because they haven't got enough people to pick the, the berries and all the rest of it, which makes me long for those of you who are from Dundee, it makes me long for the berry buses, which used to come round and collect people. And you'd go out and you'd go and work on the fields and you'd get paid so much. I used to, I wasn't in Dundee, but up north I used to go uh, picking berries in the summer holidays. And what you didn't eat, uh, you lived off, I couldn't eat raspberries for many, many years after those. But what you didn't eat, you, you managed to pick and you got paid money. But we live in this bizarre culture now where um, people don't want to work. A lot of people anyway. 
And so I, I just find it, I don't understand how we can have tens of thousands unemployed and yet we find that berries can't be picked. So that's a, one of the solutions. It would have been in, in, in biblical days and in the days of Wilberforce, well, you get slaves to do it. Maybe we're not that different. We just say we get gangmasters who bring in cheap labor from elsewhere, who they control. But this was much more, more serious than that. In the course of the transatlantic slave trade, over 30 million people were involved, and probably around 15 million died as a, in the travel of, of the trade. It really was a horrendous trade. And if you read John Newton's uh, letters and biography, you learn a great deal about how horrible it was, although it took him many years to realize that. We sing a song in this congregation, Psalm 24. We sing it to the tune, St. George's Edinburgh. And that's because it was named after a church, St. George's Edinburgh. Uh, The minister was a man called Andrew Thompson. And he wrote that song because he thought a lot of the Psalm tunes were pretty dire. And so he just wrote one. Uh, I don't have that ability, but we still sing it. And I'm sure he'd be very pleased that we do. But he once preached a sermon in St. George's Edinburgh on slavery that was so revolutionary in terms of the day that the Lord Provost of Edinburgh got up and walked out. Because, again, slavery was something that was just accepted within society. In this congregation, in this building, uh, an American slave called Frederick Douglass preached here as part of a tour, which was called Give Back the Money, where money had the church had received money from uh, slave traders Now, what does all this have to do with the Bible? The Bible does say a great deal about slavery. Those who are ignorant of what the Bible says, or know very little, will argue that the Bible condones slavery. But does it? There is teaching about slavery both in the Old and in the New Testament. Even in the New Testament, Christian slaves are told to obey their masters. But one of the things you need to understand with the Bible is that very often the Bible does what Calvin calls it accommodates itself to our situation. And so, for example, there is teaching about divorce in the Mosaic law that Jesus says, God gave you that because of the hardness of your hearts. And in societies which ran on slavery and which was normal to have slavery, let's just stick with the New Testament society. In Roman culture, it was probable that in the Roman Empire there were 60 million slaves. And uh, everyone, lots of people, if you're a teacher, you are likely to be a slave. If you're a doctor, you are likely to be a slave. Uh, Very often, uh, servants within homes and so on. Most homes would have had slaves, or most uh, non-poor homes, if you like, would have had slaves. And if Christians said, right, that's it. We're going to have a revolution. There would have been an absolute bloodbath. And there was just a different way. And Philemon shows us how that works. Now the Bible itself does condemn slavery. 1 Timothy 1, chapter uh, 1, verse 9. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers. And whatever else is... Contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. So 
The Bible puts slave trading along with killing your father and killing your mother or uh, or murdering or adultery and sexual perversion. And it's incredibly strong in that. Now, at that time and for years afterwards, people would ask the same kinds of questions we would. Isn't this, what's this have to do with my soul? What's this have to do with religion? Isn't this almost just like politics? I, I don't think it is. If you read something like Isaiah 58, or you read most of the Old Testament prophets, you find this, this desire for justice within a culture and within a society as being part of the gospel, as being part of at least of the impact of the gospel. Spiritual freedom is the primary thing, but people need to eat. People need health care, and that's why the church has always been involved in those things. Why does it matter? Why does it matter even if there's slavery today to us? None of us are going home to our slaves, Um, and yet it should matter that even in this city, just uh, four streets down from me, there was a woman arrested and charged, in fact, has gone to jail for having uh, eight slaves, which were used uh, for prostitution. And, I mean, just an absolutely appalling story. And we should be concerned about that. But again, we, we ask the question, am I my brother's keeper? We need to think about this in other ways as well. So, this story of Philemon, just... Very briefly what it is, it's a letter addressed to Philemon, who was Paul's friend, hence the name, and his fellow worker, he says. It's sent from Rome, almost certainly. Uh, Aphia, who's mentioned in verse 2, is probably his wife, Philemon's wife, and Archippus is not the first Scotsman in the Bible. Uh, Archie is uh, probably their son, a great name, Archippus. Uh, and if any one of you are going to be having more children at the rate we keep having them, just go through the biblical names. We'll get to Archippus soon. Uh, that would be a wonderful name. Uh, they, the church, well, they, the ecclesia, meets in their home at Colossae. Um, again, interesting, the, the New Testament church, of course, that's normally where they met. Like many people at that time in that home, they had at least one slave. This slave was Onesimus. Um, In verse 18, you'll see that Paul says, if he's done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me, because Onesimus ran away. And when he ran away, he probably stole something, he probably took something so that he would be able to survive. And he ran away to the big city, um, eventually finding himself in Rome. Slaves often ran away, they tried to flee abroad, they sought refuge in a temple, or they tried to disappear in the subculture of large cities. Then Onesimus came into contact with Paul. Uh, Look at verse 11, he's become useful both to you and to me. I'm sending him who's my very heart back to you. Uh, Paul really enjoyed having Onesimus with him. He wanted to keep him. But that would have been illegal because in the law of that land of of the Roman Empire, Onesimus belonged to Philemon. It would have also involved a breach of fellowship between himself and Philemon because although Onesimus had become a Christian at this point, Philemon, um, Paul, sends this letter 
back with an ethnos. He says, you've got to go back. You have to go back to your master. And I'm going to give you this letter. And this letter was taken by Onesimus to Philemon. And that's the context of the letter. It helps you understand what, what is going on. The, the language here is very gentle and very careful. And look what he wants uh, Philemon to do with Onesimus. Verse 16, he says, I take him back no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. That's, again, an extraordinary statement. The decision was left to Philemon. Legally, he didn't have to do that. Legally, he could actually have physically punished Onesimus. By the way, when we think of slavery in the New Testament, please don't think of it as you see it in a lot of the films with the transatlantic trade where uh, people were whipped and beaten. Uh, That would not normally have been the case. If you were a doctor and you were a slave... All it meant was that you didn't have the freedom to go elsewhere, but you often would have lived in quite comfortable accommodation. Um, you would have been a household servant. We, we don't, as I say, we don't have that, but we're not too far off. If you followed Marxist theory, which I don't, um, even though I was once a commie, um, if you follow Marxist theory, then you could argue that, that people are wage slaves, so your plumber is your slave, and your barista is your slave, and, and, and so on. And, and in some ways... The New Testament slaves were a little bit in between the extreme of what we saw in the North African slave trade, North American slave trade, and um, an employee today. The one difference being, the major difference being, that you were actually owned by people. Um, I guess the equivalent today is, if with the football season starting again, um, uh, a football club actually buys players. Uh, and... Maybe sometimes we could argue with contracts and all the rest of it. That's what's happened. But here, it is the case that Onesimus was owned by Philemon. And Paul's saying, I want you to take him back, but please don't take him back as a slave. Take him back as a brother. If he's going to work with you or work for you, take him back as a dear brother. Paul puts a little bit of pressure on Philemon because he says to him, in effect, you owe me everything. You owe me your life. I preach the gospel to you. Now, he says, I want you to be active in sharing your faith. So in in verse uh, 5, he talks about the love you have for God's holy people, your faith in the Lord Jesus. And then in verse 6, he says, now I want you to be active in sharing your faith so that you may have a deeper understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. And what Paul is saying there, and 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 it's not subtle, but he's saying, look, This man has become a Christian brother. You accept him back as a Christian brother. You will understand your faith so much better. How does that apply in in all of this context, in the context in which we're in? The focus in the New Testament is upon transforming personal relationships within the system. It's not just about overturning the system and changing the system. Here's the bad news. If we leave the European Union, things won't get better. And if we stay in the European Union, things won't get better. The system doesn't, without people, you know, you may say, if I just change job or if I do this or I do that, systems are operated by people. And at the end of the day, it's people that need to be changed. 
Onesimus was a Phrygian slave. He was useless. Verse 11, he was useless to you, but now, and his name means useful. I mean, imagine that. Imagine we talk about calling people's names. I don't know what Archippus means, but uh, Onesimus means useful. And Paul's saying, now he's really useful because he's become a Christian. He's been transformed. Onesimus has been transformed, this rebellious slave who ran away, who stole from you. He's been transformed. He's been converted. And he's saying to Philemon, now I want you to be transformed in your attitude. And the basis for that transformation is the church. In the church, Colossians 3.11, there's no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. I visited a church um, in the United States, in Carolina, an old church, and it was quite moving because uh, the balcony upstairs was slaves only, and downstairs were the slave owners. Many of them, by the way, Scots, who many of them, uh, those of you who are from the Highlands and the Highland clearances, people who were thrown off the land and exploited in that way, went to the United States and became slave owners, and became the exploiters. And it's just wrong. There is no sense in which that is ever right, that you split a congregation and you divide it according to their status. It's why uh, even today you can go to churches, I don't think they operate like this, but I've been in several churches where you visit and you say, well, that was the squire's pew. That was the landlord's pew. And that was for the the rest of the people. But in the church, there is no division like that. We were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free. And we were all given the one spirit to drink, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Now, what's important about that is this. We tend to think, because of what we've been taught... That slavery, everyone recognizes it as wrong. But actually, we are an unusual culture. Because most cultures in the world, historically, and many even today, still do not accept that slavery is wrong and that human beings are equal. We live in a society which argues for equality and diversity, but they don't have a basis for that. It was obvious to the Greeks, it was obvious to the Romans... It was obvious to the Jews as well, actually, that people were not equal. And what Christianity did, it fundamentally changed society by giving a different view of humanity, and which, which basically said that whether slave or free, we're all one created in the image of God. And if we've come to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we are one body. There is in the church no slave owner and no free. And that's what was blasphemous when you found people who were, who were supporting that. Long, long before it became the fashionable thing to do, and that was only late 19th century, people like the ancient church father Gregory were arguing that slavery was fundamentally wrong. Now look at verse 5. Again, I hear about your love for all his people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. The basis for the transformation, the basis for the social transformation is a 
personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Verse 6, active in sharing your faith so that you may have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Jesus Christ. How does that apply today? It applies in this way. When there are injustices in our society and we, because we understand that all human beings are made in the image of God, because we reflect a biblical view of humanity, then it helps us when we are involved in dealing with those injustices to understand our faith so much better. So let me give you one example. There's a, a, a well-known atheist. He's one of my favorite writers. He's a, he's a gay atheist and yet a remarkable writer, a man called Douglas Murray. And Douglas Murray, uh, four years ago, wrote an article in which he said, as a gay atheist, I am very worried about the future of our country because I cannot find in my philosophy any basis for preserving life. And he said, it's the Christians who do that. And he was talking about abortion. And we, do you know that we should be rightly upset when we see injustice in any culture. And so those horrible pictures of children being separated from their parents, which have swamped social media and our news media in the the southern US, they are horrible and they are wrong. But there's something a little bit hypocritical about people who object to that and yet at the same time campaign for the right of a, a woman to kill the baby within her womb. And it really is quite astounding and quite astonishing that that injustice goes on in our culture and in our society. I have been through in that hall with a 15-year-old girl as she wept her eyes out because she'd just had an abortion the previous week and didn't even know what it was. And it's wrong. It's just wrong. Think of not just the slaves, the sex slaves and all the rest of it, but think of some of the things that are going on in the Sudan. Think of those who are victims of the drink, drug, and gambling culture in our society, or those who are the victims of the sex industry and our society's obsession with sex. The World Cup has just been in Russia. I don't know if this is the, uh, the case in Russia. I suspect it is. But when any major sporting event comes to town, thousands, literally thousands of, inverted commas, sex workers come to town. I have a friend... Uh, works in Greece, in Athens, and her job is to work with people who are forced into prostitution, Eastern Europeans who are, are brought out of poverty into Athens, in, again, to be slaves. And to challenge that, to challenge the culture of death in our society, to challenge the injustices, to challenge all of those is to challenge very, very powerful interests. And the only way that that can be done is through communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ, which changes the hearts of people. Because real freedom is not just from physical slavery, but also from economic, emotional, psychological, and spiritual. That's why Jesus came. He sent me to preach the good news to the poor, tell prisoners that they are prisoners no more, tell blind people that they can see. 
It's freedom from sin and it's freedom from all its consequences. And that begins within. That's why Paul appeals to Philemon. It appeals to his love, appeals to, to what Christ has done in his life. And says, look, the world has changed. Your life has changed. Onesimus has changed. And I want you to treat him as a Christian brother. Now, it's not saying that what's external does not count. What's external does matter. But um, there's a wonderful film called The Shawshank Redemption. And if you've seen it, I've seen it several times. It's one of the few films I've watched several times. Uh, there's a man in prison called Andy DeFries who was not uh, guilty, but he's treated brutally, unfairly, and unjustly. And he manages, he keeps working away, and he manages to get himself into a position where he sets up a library and so on. And uh, at one point, he manages to get himself into the warder's office or to the communications office, and he gets a record of Mozart. And what he does was he plays Mozart over the tannoy system of the whole prison and he locks the door, he sits back in the chair and he just smiles and they're banging on the door and eventually they come in and they beat him up and they throw him in a, um, sorry if it's a spoiler but it's been around for years so if you haven't seen it too bad Um, and he's given what's called two weeks in the hole and somebody said to him, how did you survive alone down there? And he said, I had Mozart with me. You didn't have a record player in my head. I had Mozart in my head. And I thought about that when I was thinking about this, because I was reading uh, about slavery and Christians who were in, uh, in slavery, and um, Chrysostom, uh, an early church father, writing about this, and John Newton as well, writing about it. And Chrysostom says, do you know, I'm paraphrasing a bit, but he says, you know, they, they can take away everything from us. They cannot take away what's in our heart. They cannot take away Christ. And that's what real freedom is. People get enslaved in drugs because they're afraid because there's so much wrong in their hearts. People get caught up in, in, in many, many different things because of that. And we go and preach good news to the poor. We go and preach real freedom. So it's the gospel that really does bring transformation. And I would argue that without the gospel, there will be no transformation and we'll return to the dark ages and barbarism. Um, I I want to make this just a little bit personal and to say that I am involved a lot with uh, people who are kind of opinion formers in society and so on. And I I did appreciate Stephen's prayer uh, this morning because it's not always easy. Last week I was down with the Scottish government talking to them uh, their officials about the uh, gender self-recognition bill they're putting forward. And believe you me, it is an absolute mess. And they said, why are you so opposed to it? And I said, it's going to do so much harm to our children. They said, what do you want? This is going to go through. What do you want? And I said, I'd, rather, I'd prefer not to go to jail for saying this. That's the first thing. I said, actually, but the main first thing is, can you please keep it away from the children? And it's funny, the civil servants who were there, I could see that they agreed with me, but they couldn't say so. They weren't allowed to say so. We are not going to progress in our society to some kind of wonderfully wonderful, brave new world. Again, I'm not making a political point, but I heard our first minister say uh, this weekend, this is the Scotland of tolerance and diversity and love surrounded by posters. 
which were proclaiming hatred. And I thought, how, how did, can people not even see this? When I pointed it out, I couldn't even begin to describe the abuse that came, certainly not in church. And it's just so sad. David Hume, the great Scottish Enlightenment person, atheist, skeptic, um, you know what he thought about the black African? He said Africans are not quite human. And that's meant to be the Enlightenment. Aldous Huxley, who had a, a debate with um, Wilberforce's son, Bishop Samuel Wilberforce, uh, he, he's portrayed as a hero nowadays. Nobody mentions Aldous Huxley's racism. On the other hand, Wilberforce was absolutely committed because of his belief in God and his belief and faith in Jesus to providing justice for all people. On the 20th of October, 1787, he wrote this. God, in his diary, God has set before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. Now, the reformation of manners, one or two of you who are older might say, about time too, we need some more manners. Um, and one or two of you younger say, manners, don't be daft. What are you talking about? Manners is how we treat one another. It's how we speak to one another. It's the morals, attitudes, and fashions of the nation. And Wilberforce believed that social reform must have a Christian base or that it would fail the poor. And he believed that the nation's destiny were best in the hands of those who had Christian principles. And he was mocked and derided. When he stood up in Parliament to argue against the slave trade, he was laughed as though he was crazy. He was laughed at. And do you know what he said? And this, imagine how long ago this is. This is about the last decade of the 18th century. He wrote this, Soon, to believe will be deemed the indication of a feeble mind and a contracted understanding. Well, it happened eventually. It's happened now. To believe, to really believe in the God of the Bible, to really accept what God says, is deemed to be a feeble mind and a limited understanding. That's where we are today in our culture. Now, what does God call us to do? I don't think he calls us to be out on the street placarding whatever subject it is. I think he calls us to proclaim the gospel and to be involved in the salvation of others. That's why the work that's been done at the camps this week in Charleston, that is of far more significance than doing a food bank, even though a food bank is a wonderful thing to do. I'm not saying it's not a good thing to do. I think it's a great thing to do. That's why the work of CAP, by the way, is so important, because CAP is one of the few organizations that refuses to take away its Christian principles. And that's why they don't get government funding. You'd be amazed how much government funding is available if you'll go along with the principles of our society. If I want money for the youth club here, I just have to go to the city council and say... We're going to do drugs work and we're going to do this um, and we're going to do sexual orientation stuff and there's plenty of money waiting for me. But I have to submit to their teaching and to their rules and that we are not going to do. We, God's calling us to salvation, 
not just our own, but also to be involved in the salvation of others. That's why we pray for the rulers of our society. That's why our primary concern must always be to communicate the gospel, whilst at the same time not setting that over and against the social justice, because the social justice comes from that. Um, again, just give me, let me just give you a couple of examples in Dundee. Dundee actually has a bizarre number, a large number of parks. And for a city that was so industrial, sometimes people ask why. Well, that's because Baxter Park and Caird Park and basically all the parks were donated by mill owners who were converted and realized that what they were doing wasn't right. It wasn't right that they were living in the richest square mile in Europe, which was Broughty Ferry, whilst at the same time having the poorest square mile in Europe, which was actually here. Believe it or not, the West End was not. It was, it was a very incredibly poor area where 50% of children died before they got to five years old. And these men, Lamb, who set up the Queen's Hotel as a temperance hotel, they were business people who became Christians and who said, we, we have to do something. We have to provide for our workforce. And as God transformed their hearts, I think it also transformed the society. And that's what we long for. That's what we look for. So what Philemon teaches us is Paul's and, and the Bible's wonderful way of, of, of dealing with these sins in human society that, that get reflected in people's lives. And the Bible's way is not to say you change the society, then you change the lives. It's to say you change a society by changing the lives. And the only thing that changes the lives is the gospel. Mez McConnell, who runs 20 schemes, finds it increasingly frustrating that there are so many churches who think that they help the poor by, oh, we're going to do this and we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And he says, no, no, I want you to come and help us set up churches in poor communities. I want you to come and help us uh, communicate the gospel. That is the most important thing. And for fighting slavery and all the injustices in our culture, that is by far the most important thing. Um, and I love Paul's just thing at the end there where he says, uh, prepare a guest room for me. It's kind of, here's what I'm asking you to do. And he's asking it in this way. And by the way, I'm coming to visit. Uh, and uh, there's a kind of, how will I put it? A, a, a gentle pressure in that. He's not commanding. He's asking. But his asking is of such force because he's asking in the name of Jesus and he's asking because of the love of Jesus. And I believe that that's the route that we have to go. So what does the Bible have to say about slavery? No, it doesn't condone slavery. What the Bible has to say about slavery is the very thing that causes slavery, the inequality and the injustice and the cruelty of human beings to one another is dealt with through Jesus Christ. And what our society and our world needs is the gospel more and more. So you're here, you're not a Christian. The most revolutionary thing you will ever do in your life is become a Christian. And you're here and you are a Christian then you work away as salt and light to whatever God has called you. This is just the little bit that you have got. But as part of the fellowship of the church, as part of God's praying people, we see remarkable things. We see 
God at work. And we see the evil and the injustice in this world being confronted and challenged by the light of Christ. It's never easy, but it does happen. May God bless his word to us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this little story of Onesimus and Philemon and Aphia and Archippus. We thank you that in this insight into that world, we see also an insight into how the gospel works. And this is part of your inspired revelation to us. We thank you that Paul was able to appeal on the basis of faith in you and the love for your people. We thank you, O Lord, that you have granted us the opportunity to do as Philemon did, to refresh the hearts of the Lord's people, to show hospitality, to care for one another, to welcome back and forgive those who have wronged us. And we thank you that in our relationships with one another, there is an equality because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And we ask, O Lord, that many more in this city would be added. Lord, we look at the desperate needs and what this city needs and what the towns around need and the villages and the houses around need more than anything else is the gospel of Jesus. Help us and help others to live and proclaim it in your name. Amen. We're going to finish by singing the song um, Grace. It's uh, one from... City of Light. I had the privilege whilst I was in Australia of going to their church and uh, uh, they have some very good singing, but not as good as yours. So, your grace that leads a sinner home from death to life forever and sings the song of righteousness by blood and not by merit. It is all by Christ's grace. Let's stand and sing that and then please remain standing for the benediction.
may Christ, who is adored in the highest heaven, the everlasting Lord, the Prince of Peace and Son of Righteousness, fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Amen. Amen. Don't forget the prayer meeting on Wednesday and next Sunday Sinclair will be uh, here in the evening to continue his series on what's now going to be a series on Proverbs.